0: Well, we took a break last week from 1 Peter uh, to honor Charlie Jolly, uh, one of our elders who passed away and is now with Jesus. Had a great memorial service for him on Tuesday. Uh, Just a parade of people coming up and talking about the the influence that he'd had on their lives. Just an ordinary person doing ordinary things. With, with godly intentionality, with a desire to, to just be used by God. It was really sweet. And so we're back in today into First Peter. Uh, we've been studying this book. We just have a few more weeks left. We'll do today and then a couple more weeks, and we'll be through this book. And this book, First Peter, written by the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' core disciples, uh, had a front row seat to Jesus' suffering and, and life and death. And resurrection. And, uh, and he's writing this book, he tells us in chapter 5, so that we would stand firm in the grace of God. There's this grace of God that the people of God have experienced. We, we've been set free. We've been given a new living hope. We've been brought into relationship with God. And he's saying, stand firm. And the reason he's calling us to stand firm is because he knows that there's something that comes against us, that's opposed to us, and it comes in the form of persecution and suffering. And so throughout this book, there's been this theme of dealing with suffering. Now, other parts of the scripture talk about suffering in general, suffering uh, for you know, sickness or, or those sorts of things. This kind of suffering that Peter's been talking about is specifically suffering for righteousness' sake, suffering for your obedience, saying, I'm going to do the right thing. And as a result of committing to do the right thing, people oppose you. That's the kind of suffering that he has in view here. That's what he's been talking about. And, and there's a principle, I think, that, that we see. I think Peter has this in mind as he's thinking about the audience he's writing to, as well as as we think about our context. Here's how I wrote it uh, down. The world loves it when we're the hands and feet of Jesus. But take a stand for obedience, and they'll turn on you. The world loves it when we're the hands and feet of Jesus. When we do things selflessly to serve, uh, we, people love that. That surprises that people think the church is supposed to only be care about themselves. And when we love people, when you when you go and you buy a gift for House of Refuge, when you give money over and above to bless these sorts of organizations, that that's wonderful, and, and we'll, part of the reason that we will take an offering on Christmas Eve is because even the guests that are here that aren't necessarily followers of Christ, th- people love to, to give to things that go to bless other people. So we do that kind of stuff, the world applauds. As soon as you take a stand, say, here's something that's right, here's an area I'm not going to compromise, the world turns on you. Uh, they oppose they, they that pretty quickly. One example that's sort of out there in culture right now, corporately speaking, is Hobby Lobby. I don't know if you're about uh, Hobby Lobby, the, the business. Uh, it was started a number of years ago. It's a family-run business. Uh, they're, they're followers of Christ, devout followers of Christ, and wanted to start their business with the intention of, of seeing God work in and through that business. And so there's a lot about Hobby Lobby that the world would applaud. So let me just tell you a few things about Hobby Lobby. It started as a garage business with six hundred dollars Now it's two businesses nationwide, employs almost 14,000 people, right? The world would hear that and go, yes, that's a truly American story. Yes, creating jobs, that's wonderful. Hobby Lobby in the midst of the recession has continued to raise wages. It's amazing. Well, most people are cutting back. They've paid well above the minimum wage for years. They've increased salaries even in the midst of the recession. The world would look at that and go, yes, that's exactly how it should be. That's wonderful. That's awesome. The family owners signed a pledge years ago that they would uh, give the majority of their wealth and their profits to philanthropy. So they're not doing this business just to get rich for themselves. And the world would look at that and go, yes, that's wonderful. But just recently... Hobby Lobby has taken a stand for something that they think is right. The world hasn't responded quite as well. (laughs) See, part of the Affordable Care Act, the HHS mandate, requires companies to pay. uh, The big big talk out there has been about contraception. The issue is not contraception. Hobby Lobby, according to the Affordable Care Act, would have to pay for its employees to have abortion as a Christian company, they say, we can't do that. That violates our conscience. And the world replies, so what? You're not a church. You're not a business. Leave your, leave your private beliefs on the, si- on the side. You're just a business. You're not a church. Just, just leave that out of the way. And, and they've, they've filed a thing saying, we're, we're refusing to do that. And the government has come back and said, no, you have to do that. Or you're going to pay $1.3 million a day as a fine. It's, this is America, okay? This is a travesty. And it just shows you that point. Here's a business. They're doing the right thing. They're employing people. They're raising wages. They're doing, yeah, 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 yeah. We're taking a stand because we refuse to compromise in this area. Wait a minute. You see it in, in our lives. I mean, I think about a couple, there's a, there's a few folks in our church that are constantly thinking outward focus, and I just love how it works. And so one example of this that I think the world would applaud was, was a number of people just this Thanksgiving got together and said, we're, we're going to go, and we're going to collect food, and we're going to collect water, and we're going to collect clothing items, and we're going to go, and we're going to bless homeless people, and we're just going to give to them, and expect nothing in return. And, and we would look at those kinds of things, and the world around would go, yes, that's Wonderful. Well, there's another lady in our church, and what she wanted to do that was outward focused was she wanted to write her story down on a piece of paper and write how God had worked in her life and, and encourage people that they needed to trust in Christ. And so she writes this very personal, her own story, and this very personal call for people to, to trust in the Lord, and she runs off a number of copies, and she hands it and gives it to all the people at her work and says, I love you, and I want you to know my story, and here's what I think is really, really important. And the boss calls her aside and says, you can't do that here. That's private. That's for yourself. You, you can't do it. Separation of church and state as if the company she works for is the state somehow. Right? It's like, be a nice person. Yeah, we're all for that. Take a stand. No. We're going to push back. That's what happened in Peter's day, and that's what happens in our day. And that's the context in which Peter is writing to. He's saying, in the midst of this, take a stand for what's right, but then stand firm. And if you're going to stand firm, there's a couple ways that you need to arm yourself, a couple ways you need to begin to to think and to live if you're going to stand firm. And so that's what he talks about in this passage. Uh, In this passage, he specifically talks about that we need to have the mind of Christ And we need to have the love of Christ. That's what this is about. None of this persecution, by the way, should surprise us. Jesus said that it was coming. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. This is just part of how it goes. And Peter here is writing, saying, stand firm in the face of suffering. Have the mind of Christ. Have the love of Christ. That's what he's looking at in this verse. So let's, let's go ahead and dig into it. First, he tells us to have the mind of Christ. If you're going to endure suffering, you have to have the mind of Christ. He says, verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now let's stop just for a moment. He, He starts off with these two very important words. Since therefore, since therefore, in light of what he was just talking about, that Christ suffered in the flesh, in light of this, now where was he talking about this? Where was he saying Christ suffered in the flesh? We've got to go back to chapter 3, verse 18. We looked at this a few weeks ago. We said this is one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Peter had been saying it's better to suffer for doing what's good than to suffer for doing what's evil. And so hang in there, hold fast, and look to Jesus. His, His suffering cost him his life. Look to him as your example. But but not only is Jesus our example, you see that Jesus is our savior. Jesus has gotten us approval with God. Look again at verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So this is a really important point as we look at at what's coming next. What's coming next are a number of commands. Commands. Peter's going to say, do this, do this, do this, commands, okay? Now, the tendency is for us to think that God will accept us or love us on the basis of our ability to obey him. If I obey, then I'll be accepted. That's, that's the mode of religion. That's what religion says. If you perform well enough, if you do the right things, then God will accept you. But what Peter here is saying, he's saying, listen, Christ already suffered once for sins, the righteous for the righteous. You're already brought in; you've been brought into God. Now, now go do this. Live in this way. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, first command: arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Have the mind. Of Christ. Now, arm yourselves is really a more aggressive way to say that. The idea here is that this is a battle. This won't be easy. This will be a fight. And if you've ever taken a stand for what's right and had people that you love turn on you, you know how difficult that is. And he says, the only way you'll get through that is if you arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Okay, same way, what's he talking about? Well, he was just talking about Christ and his suffering. Now he's saying, arm yourself with the same way of thinking that Christ had. So we have to ask, okay, what what way of thinking did Christ have? What was Christ's way of thinking? If we have the mind of Christ, what would that mean? What would that look like? Well, Jesus told us what drove him. Jesus told us what was in his mind, what fueled him. He tells us in John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus tells his disciples, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This was when the disciples had been out traveling and they were all pretty hungry and they went off to get lunch and Jesus is not focused on food. He's not focused on where do I get my next meal. What are we going to have next? He's focused on doing the will of him who sent me. Listen, I didn't get up in the morning for breakfast. I got up in the morning to do what God wants. When my father speaks, I listen and I do what he says." Jesus gives us the same kind of idea of what's in his mind in John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus said to them, I say to you, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Think about that uh, phrase for just a moment. The Son can do nothing of his own accord. You know, we we read the gospels and we see Jesus do all these amazing things. And you know what we do? We go, oh, he was pulling out the God card, like he had a you know red S underneath his robe, and you know he was just. Jesus is saying, listen, I, I I never am playing that card. I'm relying on my Father. I'm walking by the Spirit. I hear what my Father tells me to do, and I do it. That's the mind of Christ. That's the mind. Saying, I don't exist for myself. I hear what God says, I do it. And so Peter is saying, if you want to endure suffering, if you want to endure persecution, if you want to endure this difficulty, arm yourself with a mindset that says, no matter what, the best thing I can do is obey Jesus. The best thing I can do is hear my Father's voice and do what he says. This is so... Um, If you think about what Peter's saying, Peter's saying now, Jesus' commitment to obeying his father cost him his life. And it might cost you your life. How committed are you to doing what's right? To doing what God's word says? I don't don't know any of us, at least in this country, that are going to be killed for our faith. Maybe some will. Maybe someday. Are you willing to go that far? This is what Peter had said back in chapter 3, verse 17. It's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Listen, a disciple is someone who hears God's voice and does what he says. Has this mindset of Jesus. He also tells us down in verse 7. So he kind of brackets this first section with this importance of, of thinking like Christ. In verse 7, the end, chapter 4. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Think clearly. Think like Christ did. That will give you insight into how to pray, which will help you stand firm. So he brackets this, uh, this idea of having the mind of Christ with, with ideas of thinking. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Be sober-minded. And then in the middle, he gives us a number of reasons why we should do this. A number of compelling reasons. The first one is that having the mind of Christ represents a clear break with sin. Represents a clear break with sin. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin you do a double take there for a minute. You go, wait, wait, wait. Is he saying that anyone who's ever suffered stops sinning? Like, is Peter arguing for a sinlessness here? Like, like there's a way to eventually not sin? I remember being, I've told this story before, I remember being in this, uh, this little double wide trailer church up in the Tono uh, Basin. I invited it to, to preach this thing, and they had this sort of uh, prayer and praise time, where anyone could share a prayer request or a praise. And I remember, this one lady stood up and said, "I just want to praise God this week because I have not sinned all week." And I'm thinking, is this building lightning proof? <laughs> like, I'm thinking you, you're sinning now. Like, that's a sin right now because there's no way that that's true. And there's no, and if you really think that that's true, then you're so full of pride. Like, what are you right? So anyone who tells you you can like eventually stop sinning, the Scripture tells us that that's not clear. That can't happen. Look at Ecclesiastes 7. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. First John 1, eight says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So Peter can't mean here that if, if you endure suffering, if you endure persecution, you'll stop sinning. What he is saying is that if, if, you, if you're willing to do what's right, And you're gonna suffer for it, and you still say, I'm still, it's okay, I'm, I'm willing to suffer for doing what's right, then what that indicates is that you've made a clear break with sin. You've said, My master is Jesus, not the crowd. My master is Jesus, not myself, and my desire to do what I want. It's a clear break with sin. The second thing that that we see is that this this strengthens then our commitment to obedience. Look at verse 2. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Listen, if you suffer, if you take a stand for this, it shows you've made a clear break from sin, and the rest of your life, that commitment will be stronger. See, obedience is like a muscle. You use it a lot. You hear what God says and you do it. You hear what God says and you do it. And you build that muscle of obedience. You start hearing what God says and going, eh. And that obedience muscle atrophies. And especially if you make a clear decision, I am following Christ no matter the cost, no matter who turns on me, your commitment to Christ is strong. And Peter says, "The rest of your life, it will be strong." There's another reason why we should have the mind of Christ. Peter tells us in verses three and four. He says, "Listen, you've sinned enough already. Like, stop. You've had enough. Like, you wanted to sin, you've, you've had plenty." Look at verse three. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. He's saying, listen, you're going to take a stand for what's right, and people are going to go, wait a minute. That's not how you used to be. You didn't used to care about that stuff. Now you care? I know the real, right? This is why some of you are dreading the possibility of going home for the holidays. Because you go home, and, and the person you were back then is not the person you are now. But, that, but that's how everyone knows you, right? And you sleep in your parents' house. In the room that used to be yours, right? All the trophies and posters and ribbons and things are there, and you're like, this is totally weird. Like I'm not that person anymore, but you sort of feel like it. And 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 everyone around you is like, come on, hey, great to have you back in town. Let's let's go out. Let's go do something. And you go, No, I don't really want to. Well, what happened to you? Well, I started trusting Christ. Come on, you? Right? And you go through that whole thing. And 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 there might be this temptation to go, you know what? What the heck, for old times' sake. And Peter says, verse 3, no, no, no. Do you remember all the heartache and pain that that brought you? You've had enough of that. You've had your fill. You've played enough. Trust me, Jesus is better. And he says they're not going to understand that, right? Verse 4, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. Right. See, it's at this point where they 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 not only don't understand you, but they they then begin to attack you. Because, your even if you're not condemning them, your standing for what's right inherently condemns them. And so they're going to come back and accuse you. Well, what about you? I've seen you do this. I've seen you do that. What do you? And that's just how it works. You've sinned enough already. Who cares what they think? That's what Peter's saying. I love how Eugene Peterson describes it in the message, his paraphrase. He says, you've already put in your time in that God-ignorant way of life, partying night after night, a drunken and profligate life. Now it's time to be done with it for good. Of course, your old friends don't understand why you don't join in with the old gang anymore. But you don't have to give an account to them. They're the ones who will be called on the carpet and before God himself. So that's Peter's fourth reason why we should have the mind of Christ is that you'll have to answer to God for your actions. See, see, God sees and God knows all that we do, verse five, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Throughout this book, Peter has said, don't worry about what other people think. You answer to the judge of heaven and everyone will answer to him. So I think back to 1 Peter 3, Verse uh, 14 and 15. Turn back there for a minute. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Saying, listen, y- y- your temptation when people are coming against you, because n- there's no, I mean, only, the only people that like to be disliked are really jacked up anyway, right? I mean, mo- Most people don't like to be disliked. Most of us like to be liked. We like to have the approval of people. We like people to give us attaboys and pats on the back. We like that. And when that goes away, and even when it turns hostile, the tendency is to live for this horizontal audience. And Peter all over this place is saying, no, live for the Lord. Don't fear them, fear the Lord. He says, verse five, they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. He reminds us, says, listen, there are people who are against you, and, and they're maligning you, and they're hurting you, and they're persecuting you. They will answer to, to God for that, and so will you. So have the mind of Christ. But he finishes this little section, I think, with some good news. A, a good reason, a positive reason why we should have the mind of Christ is number five, this mindset will change eternity for some people. If we will have the mind of Christ, if we will stand firm in the grace of God, God may use that to change eternity for some people. Some of the people that are part of that old gang, part of that old crowd, uh, living in this flood of sin, don't understand why you don't, malign you because you resist. God may use the good news coming through your life and your lips to change them. He may do that. Look at verse 6. There's this judgment coming, verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, I want to just take a minute to explain this verse because it could potentially confuse you. Uh, You want to just. This is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Sometimes uninformed readers will read that and think that that means that, that dead people get another chance to hear the gospel. We talked about this last, or uh, two weeks ago. Yeah, it's just the idea of purgatory, or of limbo, or you know, that you die, but then you get another chance. You die, and St. Peter's there, and you get to kind of negotiate something with him. And, and we said that that's not a biblical idea. Scripture makes it very clear that it's destined for man to die once and after that, judgment. So that can't be what he means. So what does he mean here? That the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. He's saying, listen, there are some who used to live in this flood of debauchery, who used to live in this flood of sin, and the gospel was preached to them. They're now dead, and they... they, they we're judged in the flesh the way people are. In other words, they, they, the wages of sin is death. They're now dead. Their body has died. But their spirit's alive. So he's referring back to, to some Christians who are dead. And he's saying, listen, I, this makes me think of, of Paul in, in, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 6, where he's talking about the idea that there's, he, he lists this whole list of all this sins, all these things that if you do these, you can't inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul says, and such were some of you. So there's hope. See, the tendency would be when you take a stand for righteousness' sake and people push back against you and persecute you, the tendency would be for you to go to hell with them. <laughs> God's going to judge you. Neener, neener, neener. Right? And you might take a level of comfort in that. Well, you know what? I'm, I don't know if we're about it. God's going to get them in the end. But, but what did he tell us? What's the command here? Arm yourself with the mind of Christ. It was Jesus who came to seek and save the lost. It was Jesus who prayed for those who were killing him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It was Jesus who was a friend of sinners. It was Jesus who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So if we're going to have the mind of Christ... This means we say, you know what, I don't answer to you, I answer to God, and you're going to answer to God. But my heart is that you would come to faith in Christ. That you would have the same mindset, the same love for Christ that I have. That God would use your life and your words that way. And apparently God does that. God uses this. See, listen, we have good news. We are a good news people. The message we have, the reason we exist is not to try people, tell people to try harder and do better. Our message is that Jesus paid it all. If you trust in him, you've got everything you need. That, that is good news, right? I mean, like, God and sinner reconciled. That is good news, and we get to offer that to people. You know that that's why God left us here, right? And every other thing we could do better, we might do. We could do better in heaven. Right? We'd love each other better in heaven. We would worship more passionately in heaven. Um, we'd serve more selflessly in heaven because we wouldn't have sin. You know what you can't do in heaven? You can't sin thank God. Won't that be great? You can't sin and you can't tell sinners about grace because by then it's too late. And so the reason God didn't save you and just zap you into heaven is because he left you here to do something. He left you here to embody this message. That's why we exist as a church. This is why, by the way, we're, we're doing this thing called Operation Multiply. Operation multiply. We're adding in January a third service. And we're doing that because we want more people who are gonna to have to stand before the one who's ready to judge the living and the dead. We want more people to get in this room and to get around you and to hear about Christ. That's what we want. And so we're adding a service. We're going 9 and 10:30 and noon. You know this. This is not brand new to you, hopefully, uh, though. <laughs> You never know. So uh, we're, we're adding this third service. And the reason is because we want people to hear about Christ. We want to open seats and we want to open classroom space so that kids and adults can hear the good news of Jesus. That's why we're doing it. And we need you to be part of that. So I want to challenge you to, to consider attending at noon, to moving your family to noon. You can sleep in, you can eat lunch, you can go out for brunch, you can do whatever you want, and then come at noon. And open some seats and open some classrooms at, at 1030, which is that prime slot for guests and for unchurched people. We want to invite you to do that. I want to invite you to serve. Uh, and so on, and on this uh, card that's in your program, go ahead and grab that for a second. Grab your program. Let me direct you to this. The front, the, the dark side, is a letter from me. And then on the back, there's a way for you to respond to this. And we want to challenge you to do this. We only have a couple weeks left for you to make commitments on this. And we're in this together, and it's because of verse 6. We want to see people respond to the gospel. And so you can, you can serve in a way that, that blesses kids so that when people come to hear the gospel, the kids hear it too. You can serve with kids. You can serve with guest services. You can serve on the tech team. We'd love for those of you who are not yet serving to, to make a commitment to be part of this project. And then finally, you can write names of people that you would like us to pray for. And we'll send those to our prayer team and and we'll pray for those people. People that you might be inviting either in January or Easter or sometime in the future. People that you want to see God work in their life. People who right now are living for themselves and you just so long to see them experience the joy of Christ. That's what this is for. So join us in that. Be part of that. It's all part of trying to have the mind of Christ. We also, though, want to have the love of Christ. That's the next part he tells us, having the love of Christ. After this section on the way we think, he says in verse 8, above all, keep loving earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, let's pause on that for just a moment. Uh, Did you notice the phrase that he started verse 8 with? Did you see it? Uh, If you feel like it, love one another. Once in a while, love one another. Is that what he said? No. Above all. If you don't hear anything else, love one another earnestly. Earnestly means sincerely, genuinely, not trying to get something in return, not manipulating. Love one another. He's saying when people are against you, you as the people of God need to band together. You need to love each other. You need to encourage each other. Also, he says that love covers a multitude of sins. When you love somebody, you don't pull out your junior Holy Spirit badge, try to point out all the things wrong with them. Love covers those things. Love says, you know what? This person's flawed. This person sins against me. And and I'm not here to point out all the reasons. I'm going to choose to trust them. I'm going to choose to love them. I'm not going to be suspicious of them. I'm not going to nag them. Now, the time comes when, for sure, you got to speak up and say, hey, what you're doing is hurting yourself, and it's hurting me, and it's not right. But, but love covers a multitude of sins. Love is this great shock absorber in relationships. If you're in a relationship, if you're in a family, it feels like every little thing just gets on your nerves so much. You, you need this kind of love probably needs to be some forgiveness that happens. But you need to love earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. He also says, show hospitality to one another. This is another form of love. Uh, Make your home, make your resources a a haven for people who, who, who need encouragement. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I was convicted by this verse last year. We were hosting a redemption community in our home. And we weren't leading it, but we were hosting it. And, you know, if you've ever hosted a thing like that every week, you know. you know, you, know, sp- Well, I don't, but my wife spent a good part of that day um, cleaning and getting ready. Um, if I was around during the day, I would help her with that, but I, I didn't. But I help her clean up afterwards. And, and, and if you've hosted things like that, you know it becomes a little bit of a grind. You, you kind of get a little weary of it. You get a little tired of it. And we found, and I found in my heart... A, a kind of grumbling about it. Gosh. Crud, it's Wednesday again. I wish everyone would just get sick, you know. <laughs> and you're not more spiritual than me on that one. Okay, you've, you've been there, right? You know that kind of thing. Some of you, you've never hosted because you don't want the grind. And if you have hosted, you, you understand what I'm talking about. But, but this verse convicted me. Show hospitality without grumbling. What you're doing when you're opening your home is you're provide. I realize we're providing a, a haven for people who are out there getting battered and beat up all week long and now here's a place where they can come and there's a cup of coffee and there's a smile and there's love, and there's community. And if we're going to do it, let's not gripe about it. Let's, let's serve We expect our house to get beat up, but it's not our house, right? It's God's. So we love, we show hospitality. And then he says, verse 10, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. As each has received a gift. He says, part of love is that you use the gifts you have. The, the natural gifts, the spiritual gifts. Use the gifts you have to serve one another. Now, we don't get to talk about spiritual gifts very often. So I want to just pause for a moment and talk about spiritual gifts. Some of you have heard about spiritual gifts. If you're newer to church or if this is, uh, you're not yet a Christian and you're kind of new to this thing, you're going, spiritual gifts, What is that sounds like some kind of multi-level marketing party I'm going to get invited to. What does that mean? And and, and those of you who have been around a while, you're going, okay, I've heard of spiritual gifts. I know what those are. What I find is usually less than half of the Christians I interact with know what their spiritual gifts are. There's a lot of confusion about it, a lot of wondering. And And then you mix in all these questions of supernatural gifts and signs and wonders and tongues and prophecy and and da da da, and it just leads to a lot of confusion. So let's talk for a minute about what spiritual gifts are. Here's a definition from Wayne Grudem. He says a spiritual gift is any talent or ability which is empowered by the Holy Spirit and able to be used in the ministry in the church. So God gives gifts to people to serve. That's what it says, verse uh, verse ten. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Don't use this to get a great reputation for yourself. Use this to get a lot of attention. No, use it to serve one another. Now, the scripture describes spiritual gifts in a couple different places. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, this passage talks about spiritual gifts. Interestingly, in all the different lists that list out spiritual gifts, none of them are the exact same. And so what that tells us is that there's a variety of of gifts, that people are, are rarely sort of pigeonholed to just kind of this one thing. I think about it like um, like a Bob Ross painting. There's no Bob Ross, right? The guy with the afro and painting a happy tree, right? And and I imagine that, that God has this, this palette of gifts, right? The scripture describes gifts like like teaching and exhortation and wisdom and discernment and mercy and service and administration and leadership and and there's and more and, and they're, they're all different colors and god in his creativity and in his grace doesn't just go <clears throat> red but but he goes you know what i want a little bit of right i mean for me like my my gifts are I want a little bit of leadership, a little bit of teaching, a little bit of exhortation, and you get indigo or something. I don't know <laughs> where that is. And, and that's how God does that. Now, now God gives you those gifts, and, and I just told you what mine are. Do you know what yours are? If you don't know, the way you find out is by serving. It's by serving people and loving people and, and, and just trying it and seeing what God blesses. And seeing where you get the sense that God's really using that, and 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 when you do that, you're doing it for His glory. See, that's what He says in verse eleven: Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. When you read 1 Corinthians, the whole problem going on in, in the Corinthian church was that everyone had gift envy. Why well, want to teach like him? Why well, want to prophesy like him? Why well, want to speak in tongues like him? Why want to? And a lot of people have a dissatisfaction with their gifts. And, and what this passage tells us is God didn't give you these gifts for them to terminate on you. He gave you these gifts to bless and serve others. That's what they're for. So use your gifts to love. Use your gifts to serve. All of us are called to be servants. All of us are called to show hospitality and love. And that is how we help each other stand firm in the midst of suffering and persecution. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your